You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by Win, women in innovation. In each episode, inspiring female innovators share stories of succeeding against the odds in a male-driven industry. Their experiences come from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and innovation departments in Fortune 500 companies. I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, brand strategy consultant and global marketing lead at Win. Geshe Haas is an entrepreneur, investor, mentor, and advisor. She is the founder and CEO of Dreamers and Doers, a private collective of over 30,000 members globally, which amplifies the entrepreneurial pursuits of extraordinary women through visibility opportunities, resource exchanges, and collective support. Geshe's views on the tech space and beyond have been featured on every major media outlet, as well as at the United Nations, where she spoke during the 60th session of the Commission on the Status of Women. Prior to founding Dreamers and Doers, Geshe held senior positions at multiple venture-backed startups. In today's conversation, Geshe shares some of the more intimate and meaningful experiences in her career, as she reflects on the role of gender in her trajectory and the future of community building. For the record, she is eight months pregnant with her second child at the time of this taping, a real testament to how unstoppable she is. So you are the founder and CEO of Dreamers and Doers, a private membership collective for female founders, trailblazers, and change makers that is redefining how business is done. What value were you hoping to bring to women in creating this community? What problems were you hoping to solve for them? What I'd like to start out with is that Dreamers and Doers started by accident out of a personal need. So I didn't even realize that how much of a need there was until I faced this myself. I had a background in finance. I was an investor for five years at a hedge fund, and I worked at a few venture-backed startups, and I was working on my first company. And none of my past experience prepared me for this chapter. So very organically built a network around myself that um, happened to consist of mainly other women. And I realized that so much more was possible when we joined forces on our journey. So it's rather than me coming up with this quote-unquote brilliant idea, it was more that the idea and the need found me. And then seeing the amount of um, traction we were having and the impact we were having on each other um, is when I dropped working on my other company and then dove fully into it. I will say a lot of feedback that we get and that we do very intentional is um, that we're very values driven. So with any company, obviously, like um, bottom line is important. You need to be able to sustain yourself. But what has made us really successful is focusing on our core values. So we do very little marketing or close to none, but we'd rather try to have an impact and build really authentic relationships with each other because we find that this supercharges our work. And I find for women more than for men, even if you really focus, like for example, I'm, I'm pregnant now, as you know, but um, it's harder to separate your personal and your professional life as a woman. Like if you're ever planning on having a child, you have to account for that in your work planning. There's no way it won't impact it. And as a man, you're more likely to get away with that. So to kind of summarize the the question and, and answer is that um, we, we do things differently and, and the values that we um, subscribe to are just really going deep in terms of the impact that we have on each other, which then obviously benefits the business side as well. And has this evolved as Dreamers and Doers is now over a 30,000-person community too? Yes, and I think what we don't talk about enough is how important the role and the values of the actual founder are. So obviously our company has evolved, but partially because I have evolved. Um, so I started this because I naturally felt drawn to it. 
But there were definitely times when I got distracted or wasn't sure or didn't quite wasn't connected to my inner compass. Right. Like you get all this advice and you have existential fears, especially in the beginning. And it's so easy to get sidetracked and to be like, what should I be doing? Or you try to read all this business advice. And and oftentimes the business advice is like not specifically catered to you or it's written by men. And I have nothing against men, but I do find that you kind of need to be thoughtful about the mentors and, and advice that you seek to make sure it makes sense for you. But it has evolved in the sense that there were moments where I was questioning my inner compass. And then by hitting rock bottom a few times on the way, I really solidified the importance of not doing things like everyone else does. So we intentionally bootstrapped. We intentionally didn't grow at all costs. And there were a lot of companies around us that would raise a lot more money. I mean, we're bootstrapped, but, but it would just be in the news for raising money and um, in the news for having millions and millions of um, members or or followers on social media. Um, and I definitely have felt inferior, but so many of these companies no longer exist, right? So I think it's really important to figure out what makes strategic sense to you, but also working on something that you can see yourself doing long-term. Um, because like, we, we might still fail, like everyone might, but I'd rather fail at something that I believe in than succeed at something that has robbed my, me of my entire soul. Absolutely. And I know that Dreamers and Doers is actually fully remote, too. And so you manage a team of eight, as far as I'm aware, and, and you know, like this global membership community of thousands of women. So how did you come to the decision to be fully remote pre-COVID era? And how has that impacted your leadership and the company as a whole? So we started out being um, New York based initially. And my, a lot of people around me, they'd have like offices and, you know, <laughs> like to do the quote unquote normal thing. Um, and I was kind of going down that path and it was a personal and a professional decision to then decide to go remote. Um, it was definitely controversial at that time, especially because so many of our members are based in New York, but I figured like I do eventually want to have children and it's nice to have that flexibility. Um, I grew up living in a lot of different countries. It's something that's important to me to have that flexibility. And then cost wise, it, it just gives you so much more flexibility Right. So we actually got approached by investors who said, like, hey, we'll write you a check if you you know, open um, offline spaces. And it was very tempting, um, but I'm glad we didn't do so. So there's obviously a mix of like our community is very much online and the team is online. But the moment you have um, offline spaces um, for your office or for your offerings, it just like immensely increases the cap, the capital that is needed. Um, and for that reason, we optimized um, for that. And. I think it's just inherent in dreamers and doers values too, that it's women that really seek freedom. So it kind of made sense to also incorporate that in how the organization itself was run. And so what are some ways that you've had to innovate to create this community that is largely online? First of all, the trickiest part was the tech stack. So we initially defaulted to like, we had an amazing CTO who's still a member we interviewed with my culminator. We were invited and flown out to um, Palo Alto to interview with them and kind of did the traditional path and then made the decision to go the quote unquote less, less sexy path where we leveraged existing technology. And it's tricky that it's not a lot like and when we started out, there was very little technology available for community builders. Recently that has changed a bit, but we had to get extremely creative and scrappy and 
I mean, I'm, I'm the first to admit that sometimes I'm self-conscious about that we did that, but at the same time, we are still around versus so many other communities that build technology from scratch or, or spend energy and money on things that didn't make sense. So um, in the long run, you really want to optimize for your run rate. And obviously for some people or some companies, it does make sense to raise venture funding. And and so we made the intentional decision to not raise funding, but venture capital or funding in general is not a bad thing at all. I think it's just the default too often and it's either too distracting for the wrong reasons or exposes you to risk at an early, too early stage. So just being really mindful of that. Absolutely. And I know you've had rich experience investing and, you know, running businesses yourself. So what are some criteria that you consider when making these sorts of decisions, whether to invest or advise another company? Yes. And I think when we talk about investing too, oftentimes we think about just monetary means, but if you invest your time into something, your energy or your money, I think it should all be viewed very, very similarly. And usually when I advise, it's more time and energy. And when I invest, it's like more money, but I kind of put them in the same category. And whenever you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. So um, generally when I invest, um, I try to invest where I know that I can add um, above average value um, because I either have a certain knowledge or, or certain background that or relationships that can really help. So I'm not just investing time or money um, and that it also, this sounds a little woo-woo maybe, but that it energetically feels right, right? I want to, people on my team or even our members or people that I advise, I want to be um, aligned in terms of values um, because we only have one life and you rather want to spend time with individuals that kind of see the world. I mean, diversity in thought is extremely important, but at least um, have similar values in terms of how they approach relationships and and wanting to do good good in the world. And so what sort of ROI do you kind of, in, in all these different dimensions, do you see for businesses to invest in bringing more women onto their teams and more diversity? The beautiful part is, that it's so aligned with the bottom line that studies show over and over again that female teams outperform having diversity, if it's gender or thought, age, you name it, like also um, outperform. So it's like the right thing to do for like if you're business minded um, and anyone who has a head start there, I think is going to just immensely benefit um, from, from doing so. I think it's more about um, identifying your blind spots and why um, like you aren't more diverse already. And I think um, we all have biases, like we wouldn't be able to operate as humans if we didn't. And there's studies that show that those who think that they don't have biases have the most biases, um, but keeping ourselves honest and, and frankly, like doing the work, we've heard this so often, but like if you keep doing the things the way you have been doing it, it's not going to change. So that's the most important part, just starting, even if you know that you're going to be very clumsy as you do so. Awesome. And you spent, as I said yourself, uh, many years working in finance and tech, which are two of the most male-dominated industries in the world. So you you yourself experienced firsthand the implications that come uh, with being in the minority. So what's an example of a time where something negative happened and you said, wow, this is because I am a woman? I have so many stories around that, sadly. I, the most prominent one um, that's also been pretty public is I was actually one of the first people 
within startups that's the venture world that um, called an investor out for inappropriate behavior. And that story went viral at the time. At, at that time, I also had close to no exposure with media. So it was pretty jarring to suddenly have something very personal about you out in the world. And I got death threats on Twitter, um, all of that. I mean, overall, the, the feedback was feedback was more positive than negative, but it was very intense. So I'll, I'll have to take a step back. So it was um, someone who had basically propositioned me for sex after um, a business meeting, and he had done it over email, and he had done it with other women. So it was very black and white, which was good in the sense of like there was no doubt about um, like who said what. But yes, I, w- I will add that um, I've definitely been supported more by men than held back. And I enjoy being an underdog, but I think I'm also privileged in a sense. Like I was lucky that I worked in finance. Like we are bootstrapped because I had savings, right? So I don't want to, like, I really want to highlight that, that um, I've been able to do what I've been able to do partially because of privileges. So then what is some advice that you'd give to women starting out in the industry that may or may not have that kind of privilege? I would recommend being very clear on having a business model. And this is, doesn't apply just to women, but I think um, the times are like have so much shifted where in the past you were more likely to be able to have um, a startup that didn't have any business model built into it. But we've seen too many former unicorns crumble that I think this is good advice for women or men, but like um, trying to be as self-reliant as possible because it's a good business approach, like being able to um, test out, like, do people really want what I am like making? Um, Are they willing to pay for it? And that will also help. Like if you do raise money eventually that you're less dependent on, on them and you're just raising money from investors to accelerate what you have built and what you know is working um, instead of putting yourself out there where you're raising based on an idea. Um, so as much as you, and, and there are a few studies apparently that, that show that um, women also happen to be particularly good at um, revenue generation. So kind of leaning um, into that and um, putting yourself in a position where you can come from a position of strength. I will also say, I, I do recommend when you have a business idea, if you have the option to start it on the side and not immediately quitting your job. Um, again, like this is just, I think, sound business advice, regardless of your gender or how many savings you have in your bank account. Because if you are still tinkering and you're very early stage and you don't have a job, it makes you make, like your decision making is not as sound as it would be if you are um, you have a little bit more of a longer runway. You don't want to be acting out of desperation. So interesting. And is that the same advice that you would give to women who are more senior in their career and maybe more financially stable? The difference I would, the difference I'd approach for senior versus less senior, is um, that you can take more risks in some ways, right? Like if you're senior and maybe you're the breadwinner, maybe you have kids at home and you you're mainly supporting them. Um, if you're a woman or a man, it's um, sometimes a bit harder to take bigger risks. But I think when you're younger, that's the time to like work the crazy hours. Like, like uh, frankly, like I, at my point, I'm like 35 right now. I, if I were to start another company or if Dreamers and Doors would evolve, I probably wouldn't take an approach where I'm working a hundred hours. I have a second kid on the way. So m- my advice would be like, if you have that itch, like to go more all in when you're younger, then at a later stage. And what's nice too is like when you're younger, 
the experience that you gain from starting your own company um, makes you more marketable for jobs. So if it works out, if it doesn't work out, you're usually at a better, you have a better outcome after that experience that you can leverage for a job as well. And in discussing risks, we've recently seen a lot of female founders come under attack for a lot of the things going on in their companies. What are your general thoughts on that? How has it changed your perspective with your own company? I probably have a little bit of a controversial opinion on that, but I, I think that women are held to a different standard. Like if you, I, I think, for example, if you look at the Away um, CEO that got under attack, like no one ever mentions like how impressive it is, what they've been able to achieve or, or the Wing founder, right? Like how much they've been able to raise, but they really just focus on all the areas that could have been better. And have you, we've never ever heard of a, I at least haven't, of a male CEO that wasn't, got criticized for not being nice enough to their employees. So it's uh, on one end, you have to do all these really difficult things because the moment you raise venture funding, it's growth at all costs. It's like you are put in a position where you do need to like have your employees like work a lot. But so I, I think a big issue is the double standard that comes from that. And there's studies that show that women are much more, like if, if there's something that they're judged about, it's much more assumed it's part of their personality um, and inherently something that they have chosen to act in a certain way um, than for men. So I think they are much more criticized and they're applauded for doing the very impressive things they've done. Just switching gears a little bit, I read your pregnancy announcement and you said that while having your daughter has been the most meaningful and best experience of your life, your first daughter, you're wired in a way that you would much rather spend 10 hours each day working instead of taking care of your daughter. This is a big reality for a lot of women that is often unspoken. How did others react to that sort of honesty and what did it teach you? I wrote that article as a um, pregnancy announcement because I decided to have our children like so close in age. And it's crazy that half of our population are women and a lot of them do end up having kids. And so many of my thoughts weren't that novel. Like if you have an intimate conversation with another mom, like those things will come up. But I was shocked to see the reaction to the article that clearly, even though we all might think this, so many of us don't speak about it. So it, I had women from all over the world reach out to me about this article and say how it had resonated. And the reactions were very overwhelming to, to this article. And it taught me that we don't talk about this enough. Like for me, being a, a businesswoman and being a mother, like they're very, very practical considerations that I need to take account of in order to be able to juggle both. There's no way you can <laughs> reproduce <laughs> and 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 try to be a high performer in work and not think about these practical considerations. So it taught me that um, we sh we need to be having these conversations considerably more. I was extremely self-conscious writing that article, even though I'm like naturally very outspoken. But I think it says a lot that it's still not as socially accepted to do that. And I still feel this, these pangs of guilt when, even when you read it out, like, oh, you know, I, I would rather not work. I'd rather not take care of my daughter and I'd rather work. And um, we're so conditioned to 
like be that way. But um, like if a man ever says, I'd rather take care of my child than work, like I think it's just interesting what the double standard is. So the more we talk about it, the more we will change it. And do you have any advice uh, to give to women that are actually doing this sort of planning, whether it's for having their kids, but also uh, thriving in their career? What are some hacks that you've learned along the way? When, when, when it comes to juggling family and work, the most important part is to just be unapologetic. I think we too easily just let emotions ride and, and guilt get involved. And I think the number one step is to be able to, like, you're not a bad mom if you don't want to be a mom all day. Like, no, no dad wants to do that all day. And you're actually a better mom by being able to really own what you want to be doing and to be a good role model, whatever that means for you. And um, I, my daughter is in a much better place because I'm not the person watching her 24-7, like, because we have childcare. And I want to set that example for her, too, that she can go after her dreams. And it's not her responsibility to give up everything she ever dreamt of um, to take care of her children, but she can still be an exceptional parent or even a better parent because of that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure a lot of women are going to be really excited to hear this. Something else I wanted to ask about is, of course, innovation and as it pertains to gender and otherwise. So you are in the community building space. So what are trends in community building that you're seeing that you're really excited about, potential directions that you think it's heading? What's fascinating about community building is that we don't account for how big of a role it plays for nearly every company. If you look at a list of the biggest unicorns, nearly all of them have community as a major component. Like if you look at um, Facebook and then obviously WeWork has come under attack, but or Zynga, or there's just all of these massive companies, community plays a huge role. Um, one thing that I see evolving is um, community as a service. So that's the category we fall under where community isn't just like a side of our main company, but like community is what we offer um, and doing so in a more um, genuine way. So we started out by having all these platforms, like let's say Facebook, where it's um, an enabler for people to connect with each other, but it's more of a network than an actual thriving community in itself. And, and with Facebook's focus on Facebook groups, so they've seen that the engagement is off the charts in Facebook groups, I think there's just this big need for individuals to come together based on shared interests and shared pain points um, that technology is enabling us to do. So we, I think there's this phase where um, the internet connected us more, but then got us to a point where we are together but alone. And now there's a second or third wave, depending on how you define it, where um, technology allows us to connect um, in more meaningful ways. Um, I wanted to ask, what is next for you? What is your next big project that you're excited about working on or, you know, something a part of Dreamers and Doers? What I'm really proud of and used to be self-conscious of is that we're in this for the long game. So oftentimes you'll ask founders and they're like, oh, I can't wait to sell this. And But it's hard to find ideas that you really, really care about and want to be working on long-term. So we want to be doing fewer things better and optimize for the vision and the values that we have. And there's so much more that we can and want to do. Like hope, hopefully women will advance a lot more, but it's something that we see ourselves doing for, for many, many years. 
what we've done so far is figure out a few things that work really well. And now we're getting to a point where we want to gradually scale it. And for communities specifically, it's dangerous to grow too quickly. So whatever we do, we, we do it um, in a gradual way to be able to maximize impact, to make sure that we can still make a difference in 10 years and not just burn out in two years. With that, uh, I'll ask you the questions that we ask all of our guests. So uh, it's two-folded, so take your time. Uh, where do you see yourself in a month from now, in a year from now, and 10 years from now? My due date is in a, today in a month. So in a month from now, I'll probably be in labor or have just gotten a, a baby. In a year from now, I will, like the first thing I think about is work, actually not babies, but I will have advanced work a lot more in terms of the impact that we were able to help to have. And in three years from now, hopefully COVID is over and um, we will be having much more of a, a national and global impact in terms of like being able to travel more and I'm seeing our members in person. And then how do you feel about your industry in that same capacity? So a month from now, a year from now, and 10 years from now. I don't think our industry will, actually our industry will probably change quite a bit in a month. Um, We've seen a lot of new um, entrants into the online community space, which is great for everyone because it really brings home the value of community. Then um, in a year and um, three years, um, I think there'll be, a lot more networks that help you supercharge um, your personal and your professional life. And and we were living in a world where social media um, got a re- bad reputation for making us less honest, for lack of a better word. And I actually see that changing. So I think in a year and three years from now, online tools will help us be more authentic and have more high impact um, relationships um, than they used to. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. So thank you so much for joining us on the Win Win Podcast. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember... When women innovate, we all win.